Warning. This episode contains graphic details describing a murder involving sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. I saw those those pictures the other day, and in 41 years, I've I've played it over in my head, over and over, imagining how bad it was. Good God, she didn't even look like a human being. He tore her up so bad. That is my grandmother. No one sees that. They see stab wounds and, and, and bite marks on her breast. She didn't deserve that. We don't deserve that. I don't care what anybody says. He can't get out. I was 33 on the date my mother was killed. I was 33 years old, now I'm 74. I really want to tell the judge and everybody else, she was a person and it's so easy in these trials for people to forget about the victim, but it's so easy for people to think about the accused. I could care less about James Morgan right now and for the last 41 years. My name is Joanne Smiley Waldron and I was the first female officer on the Treasure Coast. I was notified at home, I wasn't at work yet, I was notified at home at 6.45 a.m. and I arrived at the scene at 7 o'clock a.m. The amount of blood was, was extreme. Just the horrendous, I mean, her face was just beaten to a pulp, and she has multiple stab wounds in this area also. One of her ears was just about severed, but he had pulled up her bra and shirt and pulled down uh, her, her pants. That's Joanne Waldron, a retired police chief with the city of Stewart, telling a judge what she saw when she found Gertrude Turbovich murdered on her kitchen floor June 7th 1977. The 66-year-old widow had been butchered and raped the day before. Her killer was a troubled 16-year-old kid named James Aaron Morgan, who worked for his dad's lawn service. He'd been at the Turbovich house that day mowing the grass. Joanne Waldron testified during a hearing in June 2018 in Stewart, She sat with Gertrude's children and her granddaughter, Beth Jones, who we heard earlier, struggling to speak in court. What we know happened in that house now and what this community heard in 1977 was that this 66-year-old widow was attacked in her home. When he beat her about the head with that wrench, she went down and she lay there and she bled because there's that pool there. But at some point in time, she got up and moved from there. And so she's conscious and aware that this man, this 16 year, seven month old man is in her home violently attacking her. But Gertrude didn't roll over and die. She fought and she fought with every ounce of strength she could muster. As he beats her, 
as he throws a vase at her, as she's crawling and he's stabbing her in the back. Intense rage and anger. And it's not enough for him simply to take her life, he must take her very dignity. He takes her dignity. He bites her, he sexually violates her. Who, what kind of a human being can do that? There must clearly be something wrong with him. And that's State Prosecutor Tom Bacadal at the same hearing describing how James went from being a delinquent, messed up kid to a brutal killer with a bent for sexual violence. Now 57 years old, James is one of Florida's most vicious killers, and he's the focus of this episode of Uncertain Terms, a T.C. Palm original podcast about minors convicted of murder, sometimes decades ago, who've been granted a chance at freedom from a life prison term. In this series, we'll explore why the nation's highest courts have ruled that juvenile offenders, even ones who kill, should be punished differently than adults who commit similar crimes. I'm T.C. Palm legal affairs reporter Melissa Holzman. And I'm T.C. Palm producer Daisha Johnson. And this is episode four of Uncertain Terms. James Morgan's chance in 2018 to drop his life prison term was a new legal twist in his case that's already gone through four murder trials and four death sentences. And he's had parole hearings too over the years since 1994, when the Florida Supreme Court changed his death sentence to life in prison with the possibility of release after 25 years. James spent 17 years on death row. But before diving into his legal case, and there's a lot to it, let's go back to Stewart in 1977. It sure was a different place then. I've lived in Stewart since 1989. Today, the city is known as the sailfish capital of the world. Joanne Waldron says in the late 70s, Stewart was a small waterfront town with fishing villages and flower farms and pretty much nobody locked their doors. We would go for, for years without a homicide and um, we did have the, the auto tests and all, but it, we had, had gone into community policing, the beginning of community policing, and neighbors automatically at that time looked after neighbors and it was, it was really a, a delightful time to be here. That neighborhood was a very quiet neighborhood. It's overlooked uh, Drive, as I recall, over there behind uh, the Stewart downtown Publix on the street um, that forms a, a circle off uh, off of uh, Palm City Road. And it was a fairly quiet neighborhood. The neighbors included uh, a, a local dentist and and a retired army colonel. It was. Uh, Extremely unusual and, and extremely shocking to have a crime like that occur in a neighborhood like that with a victim like that. It was incredibly traumatic to the community. I mean, you, you think you should be very safe in your own home. Um, it, it shook everyone up, and I, I remember it. I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to be afraid to open the door or let someone in. And even to this day, I think about that. And I remember. I remember case. That was retired Martin County Sheriff Bob Crowder and Carolyn Timmon, the clerk of the court for Martin County. Like most longtime Stewart residents, they know the Morgan name, especially Crowder, who was at the Turbovich home June 7th, the day her mutilated body was found by a neighbor. They helped Joanne Waldron process the scene. She was Stewart PD's lead detective then. 
I went by when we heard about the call to offer our assistance because we knew they were going to need our crime scene personnel for gathering the forensic evidence. It was a lot of blood. It was a very brutal scene. Crowder told me back then it was the goriest homicide he had ever come across in his 10 years as a cop. After a neighbor saw a lawn crew at the house on June 6th and described one of the workers as a barefoot kid with stringy blonde hair dressed in denim, police suspected James after confirming that his father owned the company that cared for her yard. On June 7th, cops briefly questioned James, and he was in custody a week later. He was arrested pretty quickly. Police had his bloody footprints left on a letter found on the floor, and according to Joanne Waldron, they had a lot more evidence tying him to the crime. I also was very fortunate to find a uh, forensic dentist that was able to do bite mark identification to identify the bite mark as having been made by James Coates on her right breast. A jury convicted him of first-degree murder and voted 7-5 to five in favor of the death penalty. Crowder got to know James during his 1977 trial. He was 17 and illiterate when he entered death row. Well, you would almost get the impression he was mentally impaired um, or retarded and uh, because he, he was not well-spoken. Uh, he didn't speak up very loud. He, uh, he, just seemed, uh, he just seemed like he wasn't very sharp. So what more do we know about James Morgan and why he did this? Why Gertrude Turbovich? And after so many trials and appeals, how did this juvenile killer get a chance in 2018 to return to court and ask a new judge to drop his life prison term? He was tried for capital murder in 1977, 81, 85, and 1990, making it a really one-of-a-kind case in Florida's criminal justice system. Changes in juvenile sentencing laws made James and underage killers like him eligible for a resentencing before a new judge who must consider the offender's age, behavior, family life, and a whole lot more. And the judge's job is to decide if a life term is still appropriate. The courtroom used in June 2018 for James's hearing was small compared to some other ones that we've been in, and so everyone sat pretty close together. Guards kept James in chains coming and going from court. He's a tall, skinny man. He had glasses and short hair. And at 57, he seemed to walk with a stoop of a man that made him seem a lot older. He rarely looked up from the defense table, but when he did, he smiled at his West Palm Beach lawyer, Michael Selnick. He is certainly not the person he was in 1977. He has grown. He has matured. He has come to realize what he did as a teenager and the effects that it's had on everybody. We met Gertrude Turbovich's family when they came to Stewart for James's hearing. Her daughter, Marty, spent lots of weekends with her mom at her three-bedroom home above the St. Lucie River in Stewart. She's 79 now, lives in Miami, and is a retired theater instructor who taught drama to teenagers. Marty says that they are a close family, and nobody called her mother the only name used for her now when this case comes up. I can't think of anyone that ever called her Gertrude. Anyone that knew her was Gert, because she hated being called Gertrude. She's always been Gert. Marty's two nieces brought pictures of their grandmother and described her as a fashionable lady that everyone really loved. 
Both testified before Martin County Circuit Judge Lawrence Merman in June 2018, and Beth spoke first. My grandmother was a beautiful woman. She was classy. She was elegant. You can see in these pictures. She never said a bad word about anybody. She never said a swear word in front of us, ever, ever. Gert lived alone after her husband, Stephen, an industrial engineer, died of a heart attack in 1971. The couple had grown up and married in Midland, Pennsylvania, where Stephen built a career in the steel business. They moved to Stewart so Stephen could take a job building the Florida steel plant in Indian Town, which is not far from Stewart. Their son Stephen remained in the Northeast, and daughters Marty and Dorothy were already here raising families in South Florida. Bobby Jones is a pediatric critical care nurse who was a teenager when her grandmother was killed. My grandmother is an unbelievably elegant, poised, soft-spoken woman. After my grandfather had passed away at the age of 61, she learned how to drive. And she would drive down to South Florida where we lived. She would pick up either my brother, my sister, or I. It was always one of us. And we would stay at her house. And that was such special times with her. We'd go to the beach. We'd go to Turtle Beach. We called it Turtle Beach when we were little kids. And we would pick shells on the beach. Shells that I still have to this day. When Bobby spoke, it's like she was talking about yesterday, not four decades ago. On June 7th, 1977, I was 14 years old, getting ready for school when the phone rang. I heard guttural shrill from my mother, and I remember hearing the word murdered. Immediately, I was paralyzed with fear. I had never heard that sound ever come from my mother before. Little did I know that that day, our lives were forever changed. And when these sisters talk about their mother, Dorothy, who is then 86 and homebound, she's 87 now, you could feel the intensity of their grief. They described being teenagers and fearing for her well-being, even though as their mom, their protector, always tried to shield the sisters from the awful truth about their grandmother's murder. It was, it was just horrific. And then we had my mom, at 45, losing her mother so horrifically, trying to deal with three of us and, 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 and trying to act strong for us. We would catch her in the, in the closet, crying hysterically. She would never do it. She tried not to do it. She did, but she mostly tried not to do it in front of us. After their grandmother's murder, their daily life in some ways really changed, especially around mealtime. Immediately afterwards, I mean, I remember sitting down at the, at the dinner table. Our dinner tables after June 7th consisted of a plate, a fork, and a spoon. She wouldn't put knives on the table. As a young girl, I remember if, if there were dishes in the sink and there, were, there was a knife, it would hurt and wash it and dry it and put it in the drawer so my mom didn't have to see that. For me, personally, I have fear, I'm scared, and I too have nightmares. I cut my own grass. I refuse to get a lawn maintenance company to do that. My brother, who's a, a retired police officer, actually taught me, he had told me, you have to confront your fears, Bobby. 
and he, and he taught me to protect myself. For more about this episode, visit tcpalm.com slash uncertain terms to see videos and photos. Subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe you did do it. Maybe you savagely beat a 78-year-old man. Maybe police did get the right person. But you know what? To get you, they lied. And the witnesses lied. And stories changed. And so all that's left is for you to sit in prison year after year after year and say, but I did not do this. Is that justice? Look for season four of Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies, on just about every major podcast platform. So before this homicide, what was going on with James? Well, there are conflicting stories about what his life at home was like and whether his childhood really was as traumatic and chaotic as his lawyers have described it. Marty told me she wondered what happened to James as a little kid. You know, how did society fail with James Morgan? I I would have thought that during his school years, some teacher would have noticed that he was different. Now, he's still a human being, and as much as I dislike what he did, I can't say that I hate him. As, as horrendous as this was, you know, I, I, I keep questioning, you know, why didn't someone sometime in his early years, you know, help him? No one is born bad. His parents, William and Alice Morgan, stood by James through all of his trials and supported him in prison until they died in the mid-80s. James has portrayed his dad as a heavy drinker who abused his mother, his brother Bill, and sister Mary. He told one doctor around age 10 that his mother left for a couple of years, but the state pointed out he told a different doctor she was only gone for a few months. Yeah, and he's claimed he was sexually abused by an uncle and was molested by a couple of cousins when he was a young boy. But prosecutors, they say those claims never surfaced until his third and fourth trials. Now, defense attorney Michael Salnick, who met James as a client during his first appeal in the late 70s, he knew his folks. His parents had hired him. When Salnick talked to me, he agreed they've been described at different times as loving parents and as horrible people who had a turbulent relationship, and James suffered the fallout. Back in 1977, you had a young boy who was certainly the victim of abuse and all sorts of horrible things, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, never got services that he needed, and unfortunately got himself involved in something which was horrifying for everybody. Parents were extremely supportive, but one never knows what goes on in a home. One doesn't know what's said. One doesn't know how much somebody drinks. And people are always at their best when they're out there in public. We know that on June 6, 1977, James lived with his family in a poorer part of Stewart. He couldn't read. He had a juvie record for a few burglary charges, but no history of violence. He also had a habit of trying to enter the homes of elderly, single women who used his dad's mowing service, and twice he got caught stealing. 
Yeah, you know, that part was kind of creepy when the prosecution was talking about that during his hearing. And psychologists who have tested James over the years have said he suffered from brain damage, had learning disabilities, and was a teenage alcoholic. James has been examined by 17 mental health pros, and in the 1980s, he underwent hypnosis a couple of times after he claimed he couldn't remember committing the murder. In 1977, a judge wrote that one psychiatrist diagnosed James as mentally retarded, but that another doctor described him as a cool cat seasoned in criminal activity and capable of appreciating the criminality of his acts. A transcript of his first hypnotic session in 1986 shows that he talked about feeling that he wanted to kill Gert when he came out of the bathroom after using the phone. He remembered having a knife from the kitchen, using a washcloth to wipe up the blood from the floor, but it sure wasn't what you'd call a confession. We also got about four hours of videotape recorded in 1989 when he was put under hypnosis again. James was 28 years old by now, but it seemed like it was just really a huge waste of time because most of it, he was either saying nothing at all or he kept saying he couldn't remember anything after going inside to call his dad to come get him because he felt sick to his stomach. It's really interesting, in the video, James says he remembered his mom waking him up that day, what he had on, that he was drinking a Colt 45 before they started working that day, and he talked about what he did later after the murder, but he clammed up when he was asked about what he did inside the house. Prosecutor Tom Bacadal, after reading about 6,000 pages of testimony and James's own statements over 41 years, showed that his repeated story about why this murder happened is full of lies. At first, James told police he didn't kill anyone. Yes, he was mowing her grass, but he only went inside, used the phone, and left. Then he came up with a crazy story pinning the murder on an innocent coworker, who James claimed forced him to perform acts of sexual violence. So James, he's reported that by age 10 years old, he was huffing gasoline, he drank beer when he could get it, and claimed that on this day, he was hungover. While mowing the grass that muggy afternoon, barefoot in a denim jacket and jeans, he went to Gert's door asking to call his dad. She let him in. When he got no answer, James asked to use the bathroom. Coming out of the hall bath, he saw Gert at a table writing a letter. He freaked out, believing that she was writing to his mother, that she had smelled beer on him, and she shot him a disapproving look the way his mother did when she was mad. And he lost it. He pulled a wrench out of his pocket, bashed her on the head, and then smashed her with a vase. His story gets shaky at this point. At times, he said he remembers having a knife and sexually traumatizing her. And he's recalled trying to wipe blood off the floor and hosing off outside. But is that really what motivated James to kill with such brutality? And does it explain these sadistic acts? No way, says Bacadal, the state prosecutor. Not even a chance. I'll go to my grave saying that absolutely that is bullshit. That this whole story about her writing a letter, because again, it all revolves around this, this alcohol, right? It's, he said to one doctor, she saw me drinking, and another doctor, she knew I was sniffing gasoline, that he made all of that up. That didn't happen. Telling you that didn't happen, that's not true. I mean, I think my personal opinion is she caught him stealing something and confronted him about it, and it turned into a murder. 
When James was on trial in 1977, a doctor hired by the state concluded he wasn't insane and this wasn't a case of uncontrollable anger driving him to kill. The doctor said the truth was a lot more disturbing. In 2018, James's new sentencing hearing, prosecutor Tom Backedall hired psychologist Michael Gamache to review the diagnosis submitted by that same doctor in 1977. What was his opinion regarding uh, his, his assessment of the defendant? That Mr. Morgan is a sexual psychopath and dangerous. And Gamache agreed, he said, based partly on his interview with James in jail before his resentencing happened. This was not simply a homicide. This was sexualized violence. This was, fits clearly within the category of lust murder or sexual homicide. Because the elderly woman that was the victim of this crime was not only beaten and stabbed to death, she was sexually brutalized and sexually victimized. And in particular, uh, Mr. Morgan's behavior involving the biting of the victim's breast to the degree that it left identifiable marks is a hallmark characteristic of sexual sadism and sexual psychopaths because they get they derive in part their sexual arousal and excitement from the pain and the suffering of the victim In court, Bacadal said James's age and whether he was impetuous or immature had nothing to do with why he killed. He insisted the very nature of this brutal crime demanded that he spend the rest of his life in prison. Juveniles do not rape and murder 66-year-old women. That's just not, that's so beyond the impulsive, reckless act of juveniles. Since the beginning of time, this process has been about retribution. Simply stated, an act of violence or crime against one of us is, a, is an act of violence or a crime against all of us, for which society demands justice. And to make his case, Bacadal brought to court pieces of physical evidence locked up for decades in a vault at the clerk's office, and he showed really graphic photos from the autopsy and the murder scene. Now in her 50s, this hearing was the first time Beth Jones viewed those graphic images in court. They were shown on kind of a large screen. And when she testified, she described it being the last day of school when she was pulled from class and told that her grandmother had been killed. The more she talked, the madder she got at James. And this was probably one of the most intense and heartbreaking things I've ever seen in court. He can't get out and for him to do what he did to her. She didn't deserve it. She did nothing to him. Just admit it. Just why? 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 Not once can you look at us. Not once have you tried to say anything to the family. I want to know why the hell you killed my grandmother the way you did. That is my grandmother and that is what you stole from us. How dare you just sit there. Look at me. Look at me. I was sitting behind James when Beth said all this to him, and he did look up at her, but then a prosecutor had to remind Beth she had to speak to a judge and not directly to James. 
Meanwhile, James's lawyers brought in their own experts who said that he's now a mature and trusted inmate and that he's earned his shot at living as a free man. His lawyer, Lisa Viscomi of West Palm Beach, called him a nonviolent man who keeps out of trouble and who really likes his job making license plates, mostly of endangered animals and sports teams. James is the type of person who has shown he's capable of rehabilitation. He's shown he's capable of living in a structured environment. He has shown he's capable of following rules. He's shown he's capable of no violence. Even Sheriff Bob Crowder says when he saw James again in the mid-2000s, he was a changed man. He uh, could speak well. He seemed uh, intelligent and alert and uh, was more more well-groomed and well-kept. He was, he was very much like a different person. Everyone I know who had a chance to talk with him, uh, who had dealt with him back in the days of the crime, felt he was very, very different. You know, Daisha, as much as there's some really bizarre things about this case, and there is, during this hearing, we learned about something that came to be known as the grudge fuck letter. There's just really no other way around saying it because that's exactly, even the judge had to say it. If you remember, he got real embarrassed even saying that he had to say a, a curse word. And this letter was a big deal, and it literally was talked about every day of this hearing because the defense wanted to keep it out, but the prosecutors said that it, it was really, it helped their case toward why James needed to remain behind bars. Right. And the reason is, is because it was a letter that he wrote to his ex-wife, Rita Morgan. It turns out in 1989, while he was living on death row, he was putting in pen pal advertisements in the National Enquirer, and she answered an ad. She was a 26-year-old gal lived on a homestead and uh, she went up, started visiting him. And within five months, they were married, but it didn't last. She dumped him for another death row inmate and he started writing to her and he wrote her this angry letter that came to be known as the grudge fuck letter, where he was saying some very uh, graphic sexual things he wanted to do to her. And of course, as we know, the state psychiatrist, Michael Gamash, he got a hold of this letter and it wasn't even the whole letter that uh, Rita gave to prison officials. She, she gave him a copy of it saying, please tell this guy to stop writing to me. And the state's psychiatrist said that this was proof that James still harbored these tendencies or the pathology of wanting to sexualize violence against women. And that was really important of the matter of whether or not he should go free. And James's lawyer downplayed the value and basically dismissed this letter as nothing more than sexual fantasy, saying that it was really common for inmates and their girlfriends to write letters like this. And that's why they kept bringing the letter up every day, because she was trying to keep the whole thing out as evidence at all, you know. But the judge, I mean, not only did the state psychiatrist consider it as evidence, but the judge uh, later on, he, he referred to it quite a bit. And when it comes to Rita, you know, during their marriage, the family saw Rita in court. And Marty says that she attended James's last trial in 1990. Fairly attractive looking gal. You know, they allowed them, of course, they got married. And I think they were given 30 minutes to be together. But they, they said that the marriage was never consummated. At his hearing in 2018, James's lawyers asked the court to throw out his life term and reduce his sentence to a period of years followed by probation. 
Then after hearing from Gert's son and granddaughters, James spoke directly to the family for the first time. Last Wednesday, Mark. Last Wednesday, Mark, 41 years since I did the worst thing a man can do to another person. I took the life of Gertrude Trovervich, and I have carried the weight of that resulting guilt on my shoulders ever since. I am truly from the depths of my heart and soul sorry for what I did. It was a senseless act that I still can't find no reasoning for. I was 16 at the time and doing things with my life that I shouldn't have been done. Huffing gas and drinking to excess, neither is an excuse but a mere fact. My regret, pain, and agony over these things runs deep. I can only imagine the pain and heartbreak that I caused, my actions caused, Mrs. Trogovich's family and friends. If I had a way to absorb your pain, I would do it in a second. We would not think twice. I know what it said about me, and I know how you must see me, but I'm not that injured. I was a child then, I'm a man now, today. I have learned that the final step in healing is forgiveness, and I have spent my life praying for it. From God and you, I spent my life praying also for your family and hope the Lord would smile up on you and heal your pain. I have faith that you can find peace of mind and peace in your soul. After the hearing, James's attorney, Michael Salnick, said apologizing to the family face-to-face is something that he's wanted to do for a really long time. It was certainly one of the first times that he has recognized what happened when he was a youngster and how this has impacted not only his life, but more importantly, the life of the Turbovich family. And I think it was a very big thing for James to finally be able to get that out. Marty watched as James talked in court, wondering if he meant any of it. He never spoke to the family before. And I think what took away from what he, what he said was that he, he never looked, you know, never looked at us. He got up from his seat and he didn't sit in the witness chair, but he sat in a chair right in front of the defense table. And he, he read these words. I, I was hoping, I, I, I'll never know, but I was hoping there was some sincerity in them. I asked her about James saying he prayed for forgiveness. Would you consider that you have forgiven him? Have you ever thought about that? Would I forgive him? Or have you? Do you feel like you have already? No. No, no. I I could never forgive him. Uh, No. By law, Judge Lawrence Merman could cut James's life term to a minimum of 40 years. Or he could order him to serve any number of years over 40 up to life. On the last day of the hearing, Merman sided with prosecutors and ordered James back to prison for the rest of his life. 
He read his ruling out loud that considered James's age, behavior, and adolescent development. He had to weigh these factors to comply with court rulings that recognize a child's traits are less fixed and they have a greater capacity for change. They actually talked about that quite a bit during the resentencing, but Merman concluded that even now, James is irreparably corrupt and said he should never walk freely in our neighborhoods, ever. He ruled that James's own admissions about the murders were just unbelievable, and there's no proof he was high on anything when he killed. The murder was outrageously wicked and vile, designed to inflict a high degree of pain and done with utter indifference to or enjoyment of the suffering of the victim. The nature and circumstances of the crime are crucial for purposes of this resentencing. Put simply, what kind of person commits this act? The judge repeated what prosecutors had been worried about. What would happen if James were set free? It very well may be that the imprisonment and confinement has contained his sexually sociopathic inclinations. To put it in layman's terms, if released, it is more than reasonable to expect another homicide, even after the passage of time and even in light of his compliant behavior in prison. And back at all, he seemed personally satisfied with the court's order. And he rejected outright any talk of James being able to win an appeal of Merman's ruling that his lawyers filed for him on the day he was sentenced. I think his order is, is totally bulletproof because it follows the law and it applies the facts that were presented. Defense lawyer Michael Salnick, again, who's not handling his appeal, said James was pretty resigned to expect the worst. He was, he was pretty stoic about it. Um, his big concern, you know, was what happens next. I, I, I think his expectations were realistic. Well, there's very little sympathy for James Morgan amongst the amongst the public, so to speak. He's not someone who is going to get any kind of break because they think he's a nice guy. And I understand that. So this trend of reforming juvenile sentencing laws because of these court rulings that recognize how kids are different from adults is confounding prosecutors like Bacadal. In court, he wondered, when is it enough? Is there a time after a brutal murder conviction when you can say, that's it, case closed, no more do-overs, especially in a crazy long case like this one. I think that in the 27 years as a prosecutor, I've never been more ashamed to be a part of the criminal justice system. One of the first things they tell you to look at is the effect or the impact of this crime on the family. And what could be more poignant than what they all said, which is, we have been sentenced to life. They have been sentenced to life. They have been traumatized over and over and over by this system. But many juvenile defense attorneys and child advocates are just as quick to say, yes, this is painful for the relatives of murder victims. But taking a new look at how kids are punished is the right thing to do. They insist that not treating children like many adults when it comes to sentencing laws is the just thing to do. We know too much, they say, about how minors are less culpable than adults, even when they commit really horrible crimes. 
and for James, even if his appeal fails, one day he will be back in court because he's entitled to a sentencing review after 25 years, which he hit 16 years ago. And that process will start as soon as his appeal is sorted out. And when that happens, Steve Turbovich and his family will be back in court. Every three years or every four years since my mother was killed, we've come down here, gone through the trials. And to be honest with you, I don't think there will be closure because I think we're going to be right back here in three or four years, possibly. Still, Marty says they're pleased that this time James Morgan didn't go free. I know I, for one, walked in that door being very positive from day one that he would uh, resentence him to life. Never for one moment did I, I feel, you know, differently. I recall, you know, as we were leaving the courtroom, that uh, I did say something about the fact that I feel closure. And Bobby said, no, there, there's not going to be closure until he's dead. Well, that's it for our first season of Uncertain Terms, a TC Palm original podcast. We've dropped a bonus episode all about these changes in juvenile laws and the advances in brain science that'll help explain what drives kids to act like they do sometimes. So check that out and our other episodes from this season, including a lot of extra content like photos, videos, and crime scene evidence. I am TC Palm producer Daisha Johnson. And I'm legal affairs reporter Melissa Holzman. Let us know what you think of the stories we're featuring here, and we'll be bringing you more original, pulled from the archive episodes as these kids who killed seek to go free. Uncertain Terms is written by Melissa Holzman and produced by Daisha Johnson. It's brought to you by T.C. Palm, a part of the USA Today Network, with editors Cheryl Smith and Tim Thorson. You can find more online at tcpalm.com slash uncertainterms. Email us at uncertainterms at tcpalm.com. And follow us on Twitter at uncertainterms. Terms.